When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. On Generation Anthropocene, we like to bring big, provocative ideas to this show. I personally struggle to concentrate. I like to be productive and coffee only goes so far. For me, it's really easy to overdo it with coffee. But recently I found this little shot that gives me a great energy boost. It's called Magic Mind. It has matcha and ashwagandha and other natural ingredients. And I've really cut down on my coffee intake. Magic Mind helps me get in the right state of mind for a productive day. And you know what? Now that I'm drinking less coffee, I'm sleeping a lot better. So it's really had a lot of positive effects in my life. I really encourage you to try it as well. Go to magicmind.co slash genanthro. That's G-E-N-A-N-T-H-R-O. You can get 40% off of your subscription for the next 10 days if you use my code genanthro20. That's G-E-N-A-N-T-H-R-O. Check out Magic Mind today and feel more productive. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans 20,000. Agricultural 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Michael Osborne. You know, one of the reasons I do this show, one of the reasons I'm interested in the Anthropocene and why I'm attracted to that concept in the first place is that for me, there's a question in the Anthropocene debate about human exceptionality. Are we godlike in our powers? And if you really get into it, what is the thing that separates humans from all other organisms? I think there's a lot of answers to that question, but one of them is our intelligence, our ability to articulate and share ideas and to create social groups and to tell stories. How unique is intelligence? I mean, we know that there are other quote unquote smart organisms and animals out there, but how do we measure that stuff? And, you know, if we can measure it better, how might we use that information? For me, one of the things that's embedded in that whole question is our ability to empathize with other organisms, because I think empathy starts with shared similarity. And maybe if we recognize more forms and varieties of intelligence in the animal kingdom or in biodiversity overall, 
Maybe we can develop more empathetic approaches to conservation. All of that leads me to today's guest. My name is uh, Joshua Plotnick. I go by Josh. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of psychology at Hunter College, the City University of New York in New York City. I'm really interested in how smart animals are and trying to find ways to use that knowledge of how smart they are to better conserve them in the wild. So when Josh says he's really interested in how smart animals are, his particular expertise is with Asian elephants. And you're going to hear a lot about that in this conversation. But to lead us into this conversation, I began by talking to Josh about an interesting and clever test that has been used for a long time to assess how intelligent an organism might be. That test is called the mirror test. So I started the conversation by asking Josh to tell me a little bit more about the mirror test. The mirror test, which actually goes back, I mean, probably hundreds of years, but there's a description of, of Darwin looking at um, how an orangutan was looking at himself in the mirror. But it, the test, the, the, the kind of the empirical test was developed by Gordon Gallup, who's a psychologist at Albany okay. um, in probably the late 60s. But the first kind of like the big study was 1970. Um, and that's a test of self-awareness slash self-recognition. I mean, it's as simple as it does an animal recognize itself in a mirror. Correct. That's the, the simple version of what it's trying to get at. But Gallup's simple but honestly ingenious design kind of allowed us to look at whether or not animals recognize themselves and really what sort of information they were gathering from that mirror. Because there are differences in the way that some animals react to a mirror. They might threaten it. They might try to look behind it or under it. They don't recognize that image as a reflection of self. And there's a select few species that then move beyond that stage and actually start to demonstrate to the observer that they do recognize themselves. And that that initial observation of what those animals are doing is very subjective. So he came up with this design that's more objective. He calls it the mark test, where at the time he anesthetized the chimpanzee, marked them on their forehead with a red X so uh-huh. that when the chimpanzee woke up, they didn't know they'd been marked. They were in front of the mirror. And the idea is that if the chimpanzee thinks it's another chimp and that mark is salient enough that they might reach out and try to touch the X in the mirror. But if they know it's themselves, they might reach up and touch the X on their own forehead. And that's what the chimpanzees did. And that indicated that they recognized themselves. Now, since then, Gallup and others have argued about what that actually means. He's taken it, I think, to an extreme level and said that it is a measure of self-awareness. It's a marker of mind. It's linked to empathy. And I think people have continued to argue that for the last 50 years. It's hard to pin some of that stuff down, though, I would think. That's right. right? That's right. Yeah. That's why there's a there's been a debate for 50 years about what the mirror test really means. So what does it tell us at a minimum, though? I mean, if it's not exactly self-awareness, theory of the mind, what does it at least tell us? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I, I would preface that by saying Gallup and others have argued that if you have this ability to recognize yourself in a mirror, you're self-aware, you have theory of mind, you have all these things. And if you're if you don't, you don't have those things, that the mirror test is kind of like a stop all for that sort of stuff. Oh, it's like a binary that way. That's a binary. It's a binary, right. That's a binary measure. Whereas I think people like Franz DeWall, myself, my colleagues, we argue that it's more of a continuum. That animals that don't pass the mirror test don't, it doesn't mean that they're not self-aware. There are other measures of self-awareness that, that some of which we, I think we could identify others haven't really been developed yet, but anybody that steps on a dog's tail and the dog whips around and feels pain and knows where their tail is would argue that there's some level of self-awareness there, even though dogs don't recognize themselves in a mirror. So at a minimum, I would argue that it 
is a demonstration of an animal's ability to recognize themselves as separate from others. And that recognition is likely part of being empathetic, the ability to emotionally connect with others, to put yourself emotionally in another's shoes. In order to do that, you would need to be able to see yourself as separate from others. When I when I teach this to undergraduates, I give the example where I, I'll point to a student and say, imagine you got up to go to the bathroom and you fell down and hurt yourself at the doorway and you might start screaming because it hurts a lot. If everyone in the room started screaming because you're screaming, but nobody did anything, we would call that emotional contagion. A lot of animals do that. Um, but if you didn't recognize that person needed help and it wasn't you that was in danger, then there would really be no benefit to that, the the real benefit, which is help, help, targeted helping. But if you can emotionally connect to others and say, oh my gosh, I know that that hurts and I know what it feels like to be in that situation and I know what's needed to help that individual, you would then get up, you would then help that person and that would be this empathetic perspective taking or empathy that is a really telltale sign of complex social behavior or some people might argue intelligence and maybe the mirror test gets us close to that. I again, I don't think it's binary. I don't think it's you have the mirror, you pass the mirror test and you have empathy. I don't think that's the case at all. But yeah. it's interesting that some of the species that have passed the test so far like uh the great apes, dolphins, elephants, corvids, the bird family that includes rooks, ravens, magpies, crows, also tend to be among those species that we are most interested in when we're looking at cognitive complexity or intelligence. So there's yeah. something there. I want to stick on this empathy thing for just a minute because uh, I was going to ask, and I think you may have already answered this. You sort of anticipated where I was going. What does empathy have to do with intelligence? Yeah. So um, it's complicated <laughs> as in every, all of this is, yeah. but there are a lot of hypotheses about how intelligence would have evolved. But the two that I kind of like to refer to are the social intelligence or the one that's related to the social brain hypothesis and the physical intelligence hypothesis. And the argument basically we'll talk about the empathy connection first, is that there were environmental pressures that led to some species being highly social and being flexible in their sociality in terms of their social relationships, the complexity of their social relationships, the choices that they made in their social relationships, the complexity in social behavior was adaptive. And because of these environmental pressures, these animals evolved this capacity to be flexible and more complex in their social behavior, which allowed them to thrive in their environment. So if you're living in an environment where it's unpredictable, the ability to react to other individuals in your group being injured or sick or threatened would be crucial for survival. And empathy is a really important way of being able to manage that. And that's not the only cognitive mechanism that underlies social complexity. I mean, you can look at many other species where they're, they're socially complex and empathy might not be as important. Just to add, you know, to the, the physical intelligence hypothesis, which I think is really important as well, argues that some species evolved a, an ability to manipulate their physical environment due to environmental pressures that 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 led to this need to be flexible from a physical perspective. So that's that's tool use. Oh yeah, um, I was going to say, give me an example. Yeah, right. So the ability to use tools or manipulate the physical environment using tools or other objects, build a niche, um, whatever it may be. Exactly. Or, right. Yeah. So the idea is that these animals evolved this ability to be flexible in how they acted in a physical way or in a social way that allowed them to adapt to a changing environment and. The ability to be flexible is what we kind of link to intelligence. We can't measure intelligence in animals with a number. We can't quantify it necessarily. So instead, we look at how flexible behavior is and how it changes over time and how it changes in response to variables. And the more flexible an animal is, 
I would argue the more in quote unquote intelligent you might be be able to argue they are. That's interesting. Okay. I want to come back to some of this. There's, there's a lot of things I want to try and chase down uh, as we go through. Let's go back actually to the mirror test for a second, because some of your dissertation work was doing the mirror test with Asian elephants, correct? Correct. So tell me about that. So that was the first study I ever did with elephants. I was a, a PhD student in Franz de Waal's lab at Emory University, uh-huh. and I had had discussions with him about branching out beyond the primate taxon. So he he is a, a primatologist. He primarily studied chimpanzees and capuchin monkeys, and he was really interested in the evolution of cognition within the primate taxon, but he was also interested in broadening out beyond that. And there's this, this new idea called converging cognitive evolution, and it's relatively new, which is this idea that there are similarities in cognitive complexity, quote unquote, intelligence across evolutionarily distant species, not just within the primates. Yeah. Let me actually interject to just define that a little bit, because I want to make sure I understand cognitive convergent evolution, because convergent evolution is just like a cool idea, right? I mean, it's this idea that different characteristics or traits or behaviors uh, emerge independently along different evolutionary lineages. So, you know, the eyeball or the ability to, to, to see, to measure light in the environment has has evolved something like six times. Or flight is another example. Bats, butterflies, and birds, you know, all fly and evolved along different evolutionary traits. So the idea with converge, if I'm getting this all right, Josh, you the are. idea with convergent evolutionary intelligence is that ev- intelligence has emerged independently along different evolutionary lines, perhaps, but maybe there's some pattern matching to be done with uh, with the pressures that those different organisms or lineages faced throughout evolutionary history that gave rise to what we're calling intelligence. Is that Mike, all kind of more or less right? Yeah, Mike, you do, I, I appreciate you describing it that way because you did a better job than I would. The, the only thing I would add is that, you know, when I, I think people ask why, you know, what, what what's interesting about this? And I think it's because, you know, for hundred plus years, comparative psychologists were really, or primatologists or cognitive primatologists, evolutionary primatologists are interested in this idea that if you look at our closest living relatives, and those are the great apes, but particularly the chimpanzees and bonobos, if you can find similarities in cognitive abilities between humans and those species, that tells us along our your phylogenetic tree, how far back we have to go to find a common ancestor that has that particular cognitive ability. And I think that this is only within the last several decades, people have really started to look at the cognition of non-primates. Mm-hmm. You start to see similarities in some cognitive abilities across really evolutionarily distant species. And that's, you know, the, the elephants, the dolphins, different bird species, dogs, other cetaceans like, you know, whales. Yeah, and, cephalopods maybe. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. No, there's some really interesting cephalopod research that suggests that's probably true. And, you know, the common ancestor between these species, we're we're thinking hundreds of millions of years. That common ancestor was very unlikely, if not impossibly, a common ancestor that shared those intelligent traits. It's much more likely, as you said, that there were similar environmental pressures to which these animals evolved, emerged, changed, Mm -hmm. that resulted in a need for intelligence among all these species. And that's what's really interesting is A, trying to identify what those pressures are, and B, just trying to figure out what these different cognitive traits are, which is what led me to the elephant. So to answer your original question, (laughs) sorry. No, no, it's good. I was going to ask, yeah. Um, (laughs) I was interested in this question of convergent cognitive evolution, particularly for social cognition. So I was really interested in looking at how cognition underlies certain social behaviors, particularly in species that are, I, I keep coming back to this word intelligent because I know it's, it, it, it's 
part of this, the focus here. But I think a lot of us are careful about that term because we don't know what it means. So I'll, I'll say yeah. really interested in looking at flexibility in animal behavior, flexibility in the social choices animals make. And elephants were the species that was interesting for this. But But I hadn't thought about elephants at first. So Franz came to me about six months into my PhD. He had had a meal, I think, with Diana Reese, who's now a colleague of mine, professor at Hunter College. And they had this opportunity to study mirror self-recognition in elephants at the Bronx Zoo in New York. And they needed a student to be involved. And they asked me if I was interested. And I said, heck yeah, I am, of course. Yeah, sounds fun. Um, There had been a previous study in the late 1980s done by Daniel Povinelli, um, where he had shown that the elephants did not recognize themselves, but we had some concerns about the methodology of that study, and we decided to to try it a different way. So you were um, not the first guy to put a mirror in front of an elephant and say, what happens? That's no, and to be that. honest, I'm sure, in fact, I know for a fact that zoos use mirrors as enrichment all the time. So there, there are probably a lot of anecdotal stories out there of people and zookeepers putting mirrors in front of elephants and seeing what they did. But Povinelli was the first, I think, to do this, this empirical variation of it. Right, right, right. Okay. So, so what happened? So the way that we thought about doing this was we put an elephant sized mirror in with the elephants and we wanted to make sure that the elephants had free opportunities to go up to the mirror and explore it, touch it, smell it, look behind it, look underneath it. And that's exactly what they did. Mm. We tested three elephants at the Bronx Zoo Basically, the, the idea is that when an animal is presented with a mirror, you expect them to treat it as a social other because it's this individual they've never seen before. Maybe they saw it in a you know a pool of water, but that's not the perfect reflection you see in a mirror. So you expect them to go, and this is going to sound a little anthropomorphic here, but you expect them to go, whoa, who is that? I don't know that individual. And then they'll treat it as if they met a stranger in the wild. Yeah. And a lot of species never move away from that. So if you put a mirror in with a dog, they will treat it as another animal forever. They may lose interest in it, they may change their behavior a little bit, but it will never turn into the type of behavior that you do in front of the mirror every morning. Grooming and giving myself faces and like, do I look good for the day? That kind of thing. That's right. And, and I will add, because I could just predict what people will think, is that especially people that have dogs and cats at home, there's a difference between recognizing yourself in a mirror and having an understanding of how a mirror works. So hmm. a lot of species understand that the mirror can show hidden objects. So you, you know, if you hold up a piece of food and the dog looks at you and looks at the food, they recognize that relationship or a lot of animals, you can hide something using the mirror. So you can't see it without the mirror, but the mirror allows you to see behind something and animals can figure that out. But for some reason, that stranger staring back at them, there's no connection there. So they didn't show this social behavior, which isn't as important as what they did next, which is that they started to do what we call contingency testing, which is a a kind of a middle stage. And that's, it's as if the animal's asking themselves, why is that individual in the mirror doing the same thing that I'm doing? So you'll see kind of repetitive movements in and out of the mirror as if they're kind of testing, why am I coming in? Why am I coming out? And then you start to see self-directed behavior. So it's really clear in primates, particularly chimpanzees, when they show their teeth, they pick their teeth, they pick their noses, they inspect their eyes. They do a lot of genital inspection because that's not, you know, it's a unique way of looking at parts of your body you can't otherwise see. You now have this mirror apparatus to do it. What the elephants did was they opened their mouths really wide. They would inspect their inside their mouths. They would touch their ears and pull them close to the mirror. We replicated the studies years later in Thailand where we tested some male elephants, bulls that had tusks. Um, And that's, again, that's, this is subjective. So you see that and you go, okay, this is behavior that People that study elephants at the time I was new to them, but now I can tell you, um, elephants don't do that in a social context. This is unique behavior. So that suggests that it's related to the mirror, which suggests that it's self-directed. 
But again, subjective. So then we employed Gordon Gallup's Mark test, but we did it a little differently. We don't basically, what you have to make sure of is that the behaviors you're seeing at the mirror are unique to the mirror, wouldn't be performed in any other place necessarily, and wouldn't be in a social context. So if an elephant does, let's say example, they open their mouth really wide. Yeah. That's not something you would see in a social context. For an elephant to go in front of the mirror and to really kind of carefully open their mouth and get close as if they're looking inside, that seemed pretty unique to us. Might sound strange, but you really have to hone in on the fact that what they're doing is unique to the mirror and is suggestive of this this understanding of themselves. But then you move to the mark test because I think the mark mark test is a much more objective measure of this. Okay. Um, And with the mark test... With elephants, because we don't anesthetize 7,000-pound animals, yeah, we adopted this, this methodology called the mark-sham-mark. Um, and Diana Reese had used this previously with dolphins. But the way this works is you mark the animal on one side of their face. So they're awake. They know they're being they, that you're touching them. But you mark them on one side of their face with a visible mark that they'll see in front of the mirror. And then on the other side, and I'll explain what the mark is in a second, but on the other side, we use what's called a sham-mark, which is an invisible X. Um, we used Halloween face paint that was white on one side, okay. and then we used glow in the dark face paint on the other side. Okay. Um, I, this is, I, when I look back on my PhD being a graduate student, this was really fun. This was one of the, the most fun yeah. things I did, just spending time trying to figure out where do we get great marking material. Good so fun. actually half my time is spent trying to figure out how to develop things for elephants that won't explode or break when they, when they knock into it and okay. isn't going to hurt them. Yeah. Um, and the idea with these marks is that the elephant theoretically should feel two X's on their face because they've been touched and there is paint on their face in two locations. Mm -hmm. They should smell two X's on their face, which is something that's unique to elephants, right? They can both feel and smell with the same appendage. Right. But when they go to the mirror, hopefully the most salient thing that they come across is that visible X. That's very salient to them. And that's what they, that's what happened. One elephant in particular, Happy, she went to the mirror and she repeatedly touched the visible X. And that really, I think, confirmed for us that the elephants could recognize themselves. And we've since replicated that at several places and confirmed that that it seems that the elephants do have this capacity for self-recognition. You mentioned a little bit ago, you know, elephants are not a visual animal. And in a way, this is a visual test. So I, I want to get into some other experiments that sort of get at the unique uh, sensory capabilities of the elephant, or if, if it's not unique, you know, things that they are better at smelling, um, for example, or, or other, or other, uh, ways of perceiving the environment, because I feel like that begins to open the door in terms of this question that I'm so interested in. How do we measure intelligence? Because it's going to be specific to your perceptive capabilities as an organism. Yeah. And I think that's, that's actually, you, you, you hit a great point here. I think that's kind of one of my concerns with the terminology comparative psychology is that it's really hard to compare the psychology of animals when you can't take the perspective of that animal. And that's like another part, fun part of our work is trying to take the perspective of an animal like the elephant. It's really hard. Traditionally, and we do this a lot in the animal cognition world, we, each lab independently develops really cool apparatuses to test different types of cognitive abilities. And then other labs will see that and go, that's really interesting. Let's do, let's do it with this, our study species. Let's use a similar apparatus and see if the animals can do it as well. Mm-hmm. And that allows you to do comparisons of cognition. The problem with that is 
if you give a puzzle box, for instance, where, you know, it's a box that requires some sort of manipulation in order to get access to a food reward inside. Mm-hmm. And that could be looking at tool use. It could be looking at problem solving. There are a lot of different questions you could, you could ask about using a puzzle box. You give that to a four-year-old child, they're going to use their eyes primarily to, you know, figure out how do I manipulate this box using maybe a stick this, this experimenter gave me to try to get inside. Chimpanzees. Chimpanzees have hands, they have eyes, their vision is their primary sensory modality. You would expect that they're going to use similar sensory input to solve that problem. Yeah. An elephant, elephants can see, but it's not their primary sensory modality for social behavior, particularly when they communicate with other individuals and it's very complex vocalizations and social, sorry, acoustic communication abilities. That's in the acoustic sensory modality. And their trunk, which has... I don't know, 20 to 40,000 muscles um, is an incredibly acute olfactory organ. But what's interesting, I think, about the elephant is that this combination of the acoustic and the olfactory sense seem to be what's really important for both their physical and social manipulation of their environment. And I think that if you're going to think about intelligence in an animal like the elephant at all, and you want to test it, you have to make sure that you account for those non-visual sensory modalities, which quite often is not accounted for in the studies with non-human primates and humans. I mean, to put this in more layman terms, you know, they have different bodies, so they experience the world differently. So how smart, quote unquote, or intelligent or whatever are they compared with us is apples to oranges comparison because the issues that they're dealing with, the problems they're trying to solve, the, whatever any organism's trying to do in terms of secure food and secure mates and procreate and so forth, are different if you got a different body. I mean, it's sort of that simple in a way, right? Yeah, 100% yeah. correct. And I think if you, if you want to simplify it in a similar way, the question is, if you give a task to a chimpanzee, a dog, a dolphin, a crow, and an elephant, some species solve that task and some species don't. What do you say about the species that do versus the species that don't? Does it mean that the species that do have that cognitive ability that you just tested and the species that don't, don't? Or does it mean that you're just not asking the question the right way? And this gets back to the mirror test we were talking about earlier, That's right? right. Is is this a little bit what was underlying your, you know, skepticism with the, um, I don't know, assumptions that go into what that test tells you? Right. So I would say if you pass the mirror test, there's some really interesting questions to ask next about, is there a link to empathy? Is this idea of self-awareness, being aware of yourself and se- as being separate from others, is it expressed in more complex cooperation studies you might do? That's interesting. But animals that don't pass the mirror test, I certainly don't think you can st- stop and say, okay, that's it. We don't need to look at anything else because they don't pass the mirror test. It's one of those that tests that that allows you to start thinking about other questions, right. but it doesn't mean anything when you don't do it. This is why there's a lot of pressure to get into this, but in science to publish positive results, because yeah. positive results can be difficult to interpret, but relatively speaking, they are easier to interpret than negative results. Negative results, you have no idea why an animal didn't do what they did. It could be because they don't have that cognitive ability. It could be because your methodology sucks. Yeah. Or that it's a, or that you have an anthropocentric perspective, which I think we'll get into a little bit more in a second. Which is uh, which is uniform, right? I mean, that's right. ubiquitous. You, in science, there's no way to not to be. Right. I don't we're, we're people. I, I yeah, and I've been working with elephants for 17 years now. I I think I have some sense of how they see the world, quote unquote see the world, but not really cuz I don't have that trunk. I don't have those incredible ears. I can guess and we can do experiments to try to get deeper into understanding what that perspective is. And we've done some of those, 
but we'll never really know until I we mean, can start having conversations with them. Right. Well, I was going to ask though, Josh, if there was ever a moment where you know you had designed an experiment, or maybe you were thinking back on it, and you're thinking to yourself, "We're missing something here. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know how to put my finger on it. I don't know how to come up with the exact right experiment to test it." But I feel like we're missing something here. Did you ever have a, a memory or a moment like that? Yes. Yeah, so there's been a couple moments like that, but I'll give you one. So we did this experiment and I we have a, a charity called Think Elephants that's focused on conservation education. Mm-hmm. We did this experiment in collaboration with a group of middle schoolers in New York City where we were testing a hypothesis called the domestication hypothesis, which really simply is that domesticated species, these are the species that humans have uh, selectively bred over generations for particular traits, right? That's how we have dogs and cats and sheep and goats, that domesticated species are better at following human social cues. That is the hypothesis, and there's some debate. But the idea is, let's say, and the general apparatus that's used to test this is called an object choice task. Two buckets, one has food, one does not. And you provide a social cue, and that's the only information the animal has about which of those two buckets has food. Generally, the social cue is a point. So I point at one of the buckets, and I see whether or not the animal follows that point. Okay. Domesticated species are pretty good at this. Wild species, non-domesticated species are not very good at this. But it's an interesting hypothesis to test with elephants, because Asian elephants, particularly the, the groups of elephants we were working with in Thailand, are not domesticated. But there is hundreds, if not thousands of years of history of elephants being in captivity in countries like Thailand, particularly in Southeast and South Asia, and humans working very closely with them and taming them in captivity so that they can interact with them in tourism, um, as being supported in agriculture. Right, exactly. And when I talked to the mahouts, these are the elephant handlers in Thailand, and I asked them about pointing, they said, yeah, we use pointing all the time. The elephants will follow point, no problem. We did this study. The elephants did not follow the point. They randomly chose buckets of chance. They were not following the point at all. In fact, we replicated it with a different design to see if there was something about our methodology that might have confounded the results. The elephants didn't do it. We had no results that demonstrated they followed the point. When I talked to the mahouts about that, they got really pissed off at me. Um, And they said, you are trying to make our elephants look stupid. And I said, well, most certainly not trying to do that, but can you tell me why you think that? And this is the moment where I really was like an aha moment for me. So the Mahouts described an example where tourists would be riding the elephant on the neck. So without a chair, but just kind of right on the neck of the elephant, Mm -hmm. um, would ride the elephants into the river. And before they went into the river, the tourists would throw their flip-flops or sandals on the bank of the river then go into the river, bathe the elephant, and then come out. And as they came out, the mahout would point at the ground where the flip-flops or sandals were, tell the elephant to pick up the sandals. Obviously, the elephants are trained on this behavior. The elephants reach down, grab the sandals, and then hand them to the tourist on their back. Yeah. And the mahout said, I point. The elephant follows it. And I said to the mahouts, I was like, well, what if it's not the point the elephant's following? What if it's the fact that when you point, your voice is directed at the ground towards the sandals and elephants have these really big ears that allows them to localize sound. So maybe they are able to localize where your voice is directed to. They put their trunk in that direction and guess what? It smells like human feet. That's a pretty distinct odor in their environment. They reach for that human feet odor. They pick up the sandals and they hand it to the tourist. So now- So so yeah, to parse that out, there's several different senses being introduced into that moment. It's not pointing, which is a visual cue. It is- 
saying something, which is an auditory cue, and there's a an olfactory smell cue with feet stink, and so do those shoes over there. And so the elephant is able to use more than one sense to figure out what's being asked of it. You got it. And and look, we didn't know if that was the case, but it it said to me, these guys think that it's the point that matters. Yeah. We did a test with the point and the point doesn't matter. They can't figure it out with the point. So maybe it's something else. And that was, you know, we'd always thought about this non-visual sensory information. There are plenty of researchers that have been studying these other non-visual sensory pieces for a long time. But in our cognitive research, we hadn't thought about it. And we hadn't thought about it enough. And that led me in a totally different direction where I said, okay, we have to figure out how do we test cognition in an animal that doesn't use the quote unquote traditional way of navigating their environment. And that's vision. That's really, I mean, this is, that's really hard, Josh. I mean, the point I, I, I now see the, I feel like I now have a appreciation for uh, like the importance of that problem, how to go about solving it and designing the right kinds of experiments so that we can get at some ultimate question, which is some version of how smart are is any given organism. Everything's sort of got to be tailored to its sensory capabilities and its biological, physical capabilities, but it's also got to be accounted for in some sort of non-anthropocentric way. Like, I'll, I don't know, this, I feel like, I feel like this sounds really hard. <laughs> you know, if the question is how smart are other animals? Yeah. Well, Mike, I mean, when, when people, you can imagine like the question that we get asked most often is which is the smartest species? Is a human smarter than a dog that's smarter than a chimp or smarter than an elephant? Yeah. And I always say, we don't, we can't do that. It's impossible to do that. You know, you could talk about in relative terms, certain terms of certain cognitive abilities, if this animal has more complex cognitive abilities than this one. But the way I normally answer that question is let's, let's, turn it around and say, how well adapted is this animal for their environment? Mm. And especially now, given the fact that humans have are dominating the entire planet, one way you could think about that is which animals are surviving in a really difficult human-dominated landscape and which animals are not. Now, that that's not a measure of intelligence necessarily, but if animals are surviving and elephants are trying, yeah. <laughs> it begs the question, how are they able to adapt to an environment that they did not evolve in? So they have to have some level of flexibility to survive here. Otherwise, they, they would have already been wiped out. But my point is, yes, it is very hard because how do you compare intelligence across species when, as you said, they have different bodies, they have different views of the world. And I, I use the word view, but that's not just vision. It's, we, when we can't put ourselves in their shoes easily, it's really hard yeah, to ask I mean, those questions. Well, it's so interesting because it's very hard not to get into sort of the moral implications of some of this, right? And, and, to, yeah. be, and, and to think that uh, doesn't this sort of make it more urgent that we uh, engage in a project of cross-species empathy in a way that is new and hard for us because so much of our ability to empathize is it, is rooted in anthropocentrism, is rooted in the, I recognize some behavior or some activity or, or something that is human-like, therefore I can empathize with, a, with an animal, right? If that has to be sort of tailored, then it sort of like stretches our own empathetic flexibility on some level because that feels like a necessary precursor for conservation funding and for making the case that, you know, we should care about XYZ organism. We Overall, we tend to have a real bias towards intelligent animals when it comes to, you know, getting our blood hot over different conservation e- efforts. Yeah. I, I think that's, I think we'd all agree that's unfortunate. Elephants are a charismatic species. Yeah. I, I have conversations with my colleagues all the time where they'll say, you know, you're lucky in the sense that 
There are organizations, there are charities focused exclusively on the conservation of elephants. There is government funding allocated specifically for elephant conservation. And a lot of that is due to the fact that this is a species or a group of species that people are really interested in. Um, But I think it's not to go off topic here, but I think it's a a lot of it's due to education. You know I mean? Yes. I, I do feel lucky in the sense that I can use our studies of intelligence and the fact that this is a charismatic animal that, that people can relate to or care about to try to raise money to support them. But I mean, I, I always think about bees. There, there's some really interesting research. Lars Chitka, for in, in instance, in the UK is doing research on bee intelligence and cognition that shows that these are, these animals have cognition as well, but also, you know, people might not be able to relate to bees, but if you really educate people about unbelievably crucially important bee pollination is to human survival and the fact that bee colonies all over the world are being wiped out populations everywhere. Yeah. Hopefully you can convince people that, well, you might not be able to relate to a bee the same way you relate to a dog or an elephant or a monkey because you see videos of them and you go, Oh, that's like me. I can do that. Yeah. You don't necessarily do that with the bee, but if you educate people properly about why these animals really matter, that we all have a place in the world and we all are interconnected in some way. I hate to sound cliche, but it's true. No, it's then cool. hopefully we can we this could be we could have more of an impact. If you haven't seen Lars's work, you should check it out. It's very cool. His lab is you know trained bumblebees to it looked at social learning, trained them to quote unquote play soccer and basketball as a way of looking at problem solving mm-hmm. and other social abilities. And it's really interesting because it it brings this cognition to a species to a group of species that people don't generally think about. And so on the one hand, we have to tell people look, this is a type of animal that you might not care about, but you should, because you wouldn't be able to eat if you didn't have these animals that were pollinating. But on the other hand, it's like, hey, they're smart. And that might, maybe that that gets another group of people interested. So, you know, as scientists, we always have, wear different hats. One is we have questions, right? We're interested in basic science questions. How does cognition evolve? How does it relate to human intelligence, our own cognitive abilities? How does it answer complicated evolutionary questions? But then the other hat, which is one that I care a lot about, and I think more and more scientists are becoming interested in, is why does it matter? Like, how does studying these questions and asking these questions and thinking about the intelligence of these species have applications for the real world, whether it's conserving those species in the wild or doing better as humans? Well, talk to me a little bit about that, because that's this is a little bit your thing with, with elephants, right? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we talked about the mirror test, but since then, we've looked at a lot of different questions about elephant cognition. We've looked at cooperation. We're looking at problem solving, different questions related to foraging. How do elephants make decisions about the quality or quantity of food that they have access to? And all of those questions led us to start thinking about whether an understanding of elephant behavior and cognition could have application for conservation. So the question is, how flexible is behavior? I mentioned this earlier, but if you give an animal an opportunity to do something and they do it one way, can they flip that way and do it a different way? Can they, can they be flexible in how they solve a problem? Do they adjust as new problems come up? You know, elephants are endangered. There's less than 50,000 Asian elephants left on, I think, in the world, but certainly on the Asian continent. The biggest pressure that they're facing is human-elephant conflict, the loss of their natural habitat, encroachment yeah. on their habitat in the wild. It's not the tusk um, trade as much. That's more of an African story, right? Correct. It is some poaching for ivory in Asia, but it is not the main driver of loss of elephant population numbers. Yeah. And so I'd always been interested in trying to figure out how to help them. But I'll tell you another anecdote. I was at this meeting in Thailand and it was a One Health meeting. And basically this meeting was developed so that 
veterinarians and medical doctors could talk to local villagers about epidemiological questions. So what diseases are you facing right now? What are your biggest health issues that you want us to try to address? And the villagers, I just happened to be at this meeting because I was there with a couple of my vet friends. Mm -hmm. And one of the villagers said, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about the elephants that are causing trouble in our village. And a Thai veterinarian who I did not know at the time, but is now one of my closest colleagues, he turned to the villager and he said, why, why do you say that? What, what's the problem that you're facing? And he goes, well, I'm really angry that there are people who have captive elephants that are releasing them into the wild. And those elephants are causing trouble and damage in our village. And then I said, well, why do you think captive elephants are being rele- released into the wild? And he said, well, there are elephants. One in particular will come up to my house in my backyard and he'll turn on the water spigot, the faucet <laughs> and drink from it. There's no way that a wild elephant would be able to do that. That must be trained behavior. Yeah. And oh. and I turned to the vet. Um, his name is Dr. Manot. And I said, that's unbelievable that they think that that's a captive elephant. And when in fact, wild elephants can do that. These are smart animals. They can problem solve. It'd be very easy for them to figure out how to turn on a water the water. Yeah. So that got me thinking, this is a question of animal behavior and animal cognition. And so- We started to think for a long time about how we might be able to use our research on elephant cognition and how they think and how they navigate their natural world as a way of potentially conserving them. So to take a step back, Hmm. human-elephant conflict is this really big issue. There are different ways of mitigating it. When I hear the term human-elephant conflict, should I be thinking about that as like elephants tramping through, you know, farms and through villages? I mean, that's, that tends to be where I, or or otherwise showing some sort of aggressive behavior that results in some sort of economic loss or help bring that to life to me a little bit. Yeah. Unfortunately, (laughs) that term itself is, is evolving because when you have conflict, it's generally not conflict between the animal and the person and humans because animals are just doing what they normally do. They're eating, they're mating, they're migrating. It's the humans that are in conflict with each other over these animal issues. This is a definition we've developed with IUCN recently, the human wildlife conflict and coexistence task force actually developed this definition because the idea is that let's think about um, a different conflict just for a second. Let's think about like conflict with crocodiles okay. where crocodiles might attack people or scare off livestock or eat livestock. Yeah. Um, it's generally not the fact that those crocodiles are fighting with people. It's the fact that they're just doing what they normally do to forage and people are fighting with each other. So you've got governments trying to figure out how to deal with the uproar in the villages. You've got conservation organizations trying to get the villagers not to retaliate against the animals. So it's not humans versus elephants in the conflict necessarily. Mm -hmm. It's more a conflict that involves humans and elephants. Okay. But (laughs) the caveat with elephants is that elephants, I believe, may be party to conflict. In some ways, there are some places where you hear stories of elephants engaging with people when they don't have to. I've heard some really interesting anecdotes, Mike, of elephants going into crop fields, ripping up crops and not eating them. Huh. Which is really interesting, right? That's not foraging behavior. It sounds, and I, I that sounds like the sabotage, of, right? I mean, right. It sounds yeah. like it sounds like they're vindictive, right? Those yeah. stories is what got me interested in looking at how we could try to mitigate these negative interactions in a different way. So, right now, when you go into a village in Thailand in the middle of the night, and our team is are in watchtowers all the time with the villagers, we're recording behavioral data. Mm-hmm. But two o'clock in the morning, an elephant comes into a sugarcane field and starts eating it. The villagers will get in their pickup trucks, turn on their lights, shout and scream at the elephants and shoot firecrackers, M80 firecrackers above the elephant's head 
to make loud noises. And the idea is that that would scare the elephant off. Right. They'll put up rudimentary electric fences that are attached to car batteries. So if the elephant touches it, they get shocked, they run away. There are a lot of different strategies that I could go over, but they all have a common theme. And that is how do we physically keep elephants out of our crop fields? How do we scare them out of our crop fields? Right. And this fear conditioning when applied to an intelligent animal like an elephant is not sustainable mm. because a sugarcane field is, you know, it's a Burger King for elephants. It's a, it's a, it's a fast food restaurant where you can come in, get food really quickly. It's in one place. Yeah. Um, you can eat a lot. It's high caloric nutritional value. And it's really hard to get an elephant to not want to go into that crop field by simply putting up a rudimentary electric fence. And they're smart. They figure out ways around these obstacles. Now, when you talk to villagers, what they tell you is that there are specific individuals that are most adept at rating these crop fields. We call it crop rating. So that also got us asking questions like, wow, there's, there's, there's individual differences in whether or not some animals are going to go and rate a crop, which would be a risky behavior, getting into contact with people, yeah. and animals that don't do it. And this is measured using personality measures. Yeah, and which some, is not about the intelligence of an organism. It's about the, I don't know, characteristic traits of an individual. That's correct. And there are cognitive differences between individuals as well, which is something we're interested in. We are interested in looking, and we are doing this now, looking at differences in how individual elephants solve problems. Yeah, That's a measure of what we call innovative problem solving. Some elephants, individuals are really good, and we're using puzzle boxes. Yeah. Some elephants that are able to solve a puzzle within a couple minutes, some elephants that are too f afraid to even approach it in the wild. But we're also combining that with personality measures, like looking at neophobia, which is fear of novelty. Okay. Right? How, how afraid are animals of novel objects in the wild? And what you see is a lot of variation between individuals. Some elephants are afraid of those novel objects. Some are not. Let's stick on the conservation implications of this. I want to get back yes. to you know, this sort of fear-based tactic that uh, Thai villagers are using to like scare the elephants away. Finish that line of thinking there for me. Yeah. So I mean, the, the, the reason we're doing the personality and cognition work is because what we're trying to do is say, are there ways to take into account the behavior and needs of both parties here, both the humans and the elephants? Because right now, when you put up an electric fence, you shoot firecrackers up, you dig trenches you're not really considering the needs of the elephants here. You're trying to reduce the loss of crop yield in a farmer's crop field as much as you can by physically preventing the elephant from getting in. And there's some short-term success to a lot of these strategies, and the farmers have been employing them for a long time. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of more of like an unstable... Standoff. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It feels like there's, there's no peace treaty here. It's just, I, I don't want it, people to think of this as a major conflict or war. Right. It is just, we want humans and elephants to coexist, but I don't think you can reach coexistence if you don't consider the fact that you've got hundreds of elephants in a smaller and smaller area where they are being forced to find high quality food. And the best source of that food is in a farmer's crop field. Yeah. So what's the solution here? And our thought, and we don't know if this will work, but we have support to do this work, is let's try to think about this from the elephant's perspective as well. We want to keep the elephants out of the farmer's crop fields, mm -hmm. but in order to do that, you need to think like an elephant. So our thought here is to assess individual personality profiles, individual cognitive profiles of elephants that are going into these farmer's crop fields to see whether or not they differ from elephants that never go into the crop fields, hmm. right? And if you find that elephants that crop raid are the risk-taking elephants, the elephants that are better problem solvers, not afraid of novel objects, more aggressive 
not afraid of predators. We do predator playback studies to look at whether or not they respond to predators in different ways. That suggests that you might be able to develop mitigation strategies that are specifically tailored to those personality or cognitive traits. What would those strategies look like? So we're we're still in kind of the initial stages of trying to figure that out, but I'll give you an example. Yeah. When you go into a crop field and you shoot a firecracker into the air and you shine the same soft white light from your headlights in your truck, a smart elephant adapts to that very quickly. They learn that it is not dangerous. The farmer is not going to hurt them. Um, but what if those, you're shooting those blanks, right? <laughs> yeah. right, it's right. Yeah. right. It's like, well, that's exactly what it is. Right. Yeah, I mean, if yeah. you're shooting a firecracker, it's really loud. Yeah. It's obnoxious, but it's not hurting the elephants. Yeah. Um, and just a quick caveat, the elephants have their ears, they pin their ears at the back of their heads. You can watch the elephants. They just stick their ears back. So the sound, oh, wow. basically, you don't have the same surface area to collect yeah, yeah, this yeah. loud it's noise. Like, it's like covering your ears when there's an right. ambulance going by or whatever. That's exactly right. Yeah. So our thought is that what we could do is potentially develop a method of scheduling how farmers implement mitigation strategies so that it's unpredictable. Oh. So the elephants don't know what's coming next, and therefore it kind of negates this idea that they're not going to be afraid of novelty because then it's not novel anymore. But now if things are constantly novel, if you create electric fences that potentially have different responses when the elephants touch it or different colors, all of these things I think make it easier to potentially prevent the elephants from coming into the crop fields by targeting specific cognitive or personality traits that these elephants might possess. Now what's also I think important here is that every mitigation strategy I've ever seen, Mike, is blanket. In the sense that it's just, yeah. um, one size fits all. Or, that, thank yeah, you. Yes, yeah. it's one size fits all. We just put it up, and any elephant that comes into our crop field is going to be prevented from coming in. Here's what I'm hearing in all that: uh, the the question of what to do when there is a sort of I don't know interface between human encroachment and wildlife has never been all that simple. But part of what is novel about your approach is you're trying to factor in this question of flexibility, behavioral flexibility, and, and cater it to intelligence. I mean, to me, what tactic is ultimately going to work here? Who knows, right? But it's a way of uh, looking at conservation that does seem a little bit more empathetic. If nothing else, you're accounting for behavioral flexibility in a way that's actually honoring the organism. I, I don't know. I don't want to overhype yeah. it. It sounds no, no, I- novel. I mean, that's, that's our, I mean, I think you're in the right direction. And I, the idea is that, you know, most mitigation strategies employed today are just about physically keeping animals away from farmers' crops by scaring them away. Yeah. That doesn't deal with the underlying problem, which is that the elephants have something that they want inside that crop field. And in order to get it, they are smart enough to figure out how to navigate around it. That could be through problem solving, but also you see individual differences in how some elephants approach these different mitigation strategies. Some of them are not afraid at all, and they'll go right inside, and some avoid it entirely. And those differences, we hope, can be exploited to try to promote a more peaceful coexistence by focusing on preventing specific individuals from coming into crop fields by allowing those individuals to make the choice themselves not to come in. So basically what you're doing is you're, you're trying to convince an elephant, this isn't a place you want to be. Yeah. And there's a lot of different ways to try to do that. It's really complicated. I think we're interested in exploring, as I said, you know, scheduling novelty so that animals can't predict what's going to happen next. Yeah. Um, We're interested in exploring ways of deterring elephants from coming into crop fields by 
uh, making it so that the crops are non-palatable. So it might be food that the elephants want, but they don't think they want it. And we might look at things like taste aversion mm. or other ways of deterring them from going into those crop fields. I will say that no matter what, if you don't provide enough quality food for these animals, they're going to want to get into these crop yeah, fields. Yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I can't. We're not going to solve the conflict by simply coming up with better ways of keeping elephants out of crop fields. Or enough territory overall. I mean, there are some pressures that are going to override any local solutions that you're trying to develop here. But our, our, our overarching goal here is to try to convince people to consider the perspective of the animal as well. That if you yeah. recognize and you acknowledge that these are intelligent animals with unique personalities and there are differences between individuals, then hopefully as you design new mitigation strategies, you take that into account and therefore, you start to recognize that there is a need to consider both the human and the non-human animal side in these conflicts. Well, and okay, I want to take that idea and then launch us out because I do feel like I don't think we knew a few decades ago how to measure intelligence the way you and some of your colleagues in adjacent fields are now thinking about. I don't think we've accounted for the anthropocentrism that's so common throughout this whole field of animal cognition. You know, we really don't have a full accounting of the variety of animal behavior across all kinds of organisms across the planet. Part of me wonders how quickly we might lose information about what animals can and cannot do. The question that we started with about the relationship between empathy and intelligence, I do think that there is something new being asked of people today and of culture today to have cross-species empathy. And it seems like yeah. that's an important starting point for recognizing the variety of intelligences, brilliance, behavioral adaptability, whatever you want to call it, in the world overall. So I don't know. Maybe that guides this question a little bit in terms of, you know, a conservation agenda. Yeah. I mean, I think at least in terms of our work in animal cognition um, and trying to get people more interested in, in animal cognition, but also considering how animal cognition can have applications to conservation, it is about empathy. It's about getting people and, and empathy. You know, I, as you said earlier, working with a charismatic, big brained, intelligent, unique looking animal like an elephant makes it easier to get people to connect. Like you yeah. say like this, 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 look at, look at these, look at this baby elephant that fell into a mud hole and the family members are upset and they're trying to help the baby out. People see that and they go, oh my gosh, I, that's how I would feel if my child fell down. They can relate to these animals. And the hope is that this empathy drives more conservation action. Yeah. I think we are talked, we touched on this earlier. Unfortunately, there are a lot of species. Insects are a great example, a whole order of animals that people might not necessarily be able to be empathetic towards, but have a dramatic impact on the environment, biodiversity, and our survival. So, you know, our small piece in animal cognition is to A, better understand how humans evolved and what our place is on this planet, um, but also to consider the fact that there is so much diversity in the animal kingdom that the more we learn about this diversity, the more likely, I think, from a conservation perspective, we're able to see our place and their place in a more cohesive, coherent coexistence. I, you use the word connection there, which um, to me is fundamental. And, and I think it is the kind of great problem of our age. We are, you know, most people I know are staring at their screens. We're pretty cut off. We're isolated. And we seem to be on this trajectory where we are more and more blocking the natural world from all around us. I think it's really interesting to say these organisms out there are capable of more than you realize. The fact that we are able to uh, 
you know, more and more sort of expand our, our eyes and, and, and measure it in ways that we haven't before and think about it in ways that we haven't before opens opportunities for that kind of connection in a way that is exciting and essential. So it's really cool work. I feel like I learned a lot in talking to you about what it means for an animal to be smart and how we might think about that differently and why we might care about that if if we're you know going to try and deal with this environmental crisis we're facing. Well, Josh, this has been a really great conversation. Thank you so much for making the time and uh, bravo on the work. This is really cool stuff. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you so much again to Josh Plotnick for that conversation. If you're interested in learning more about his work, I highly recommend you check out the Comparative Cognition for Conservation Lab website. It's www.ccconservation, all one word, ccconservation.org. I'll also link to it in the show notes. Thanks as always to Brandon Burke for producing this episode. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.